Chapter Eight of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk, by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Eight: A pile of shoes and nose guards and bicycle pumps and broken hockey sticks. A wall covered with such stolen signs as East College Avenue and pants presser, ladies' garments carefully done, and Doctor Sloat's liniment for young and old. A broken back couch with a red and green afghan of mangy tassels, an ink-spattered wooden table burned in small black spots along the edges, a plaster bust of Martha Washington, with a mustache added in ink, a few books, an inundation of sweaters and old hats, and a large, expansive mouth-organ. Such were a few of the interesting characteristics of the room which Carl and the Turk were occupying as roommates for sophomore year at Plato. Most objectionable sounds came from the room, constantly. The gang songs, suggestive laughter, imitations of cats and fowls and foghorns. These noises were less ingenious, however, than the devices of the gang for getting rid of tobacco smoke, such as blowing the smoke up the stove. Carl was happy. In this room he encouraged stammering Jeanie Lindenbeck to become adaptable. Here he scribbled to Gertie and Ben Rusk, little notes decorated with badly drawn caricatures of himself loafing. Here with the Turk he talked out half the night, planning future glory in engineering. Carl adored the Turk for his frankness, his lively speech, his interest in mechanics, and in Carl. Carl was still out for football, but he was rather light for a team largely composed of 180-pound Norwegians. He had a chance, however. He drove the banker's car two or three evenings a week and cared for the banker's lawn and furnace and cow. He still boarded at Mrs. Henkel's, as did jolly May Thurston, whom he took for surreptitious rides in the banker's car, after which he wrote extra-long and pleasant letters to Gertie. It was becoming harder and harder to write to Gertie, because he had, in his freshman year, exhausted all the things one can say about the weather without being profane, when in October a new bank clerk stormed meteor-like into the Jerusalem social horizon and became devoted to Gertie, as faithfully reported in letters from Joe Jordan. Carl was melancholy over the loss of a comrade, but he strictly confined his morning to leisure hours, and with books, football, and chores, for the banker he was a busy young man. After about ten days it was a relief not to have to plan letters to Gertie. The emotions that should have gone to her Carl devoted to Professor Fraser's new course in modern drama. This course was officially announced as a study of Bernard Shaw, Isbin, Steinberg, Pinero, Hauptmann, Studerman, Mallertick, D'Anzio, and Rostand, but unofficially announced by Professor Fraser as an attempt to follow the spirit of today, wherever it should be found in contemporary literature. Carl and the Turk were bewildered but staunchly enthusiastic disciples of the course. They made every member of the gang enroll in it and discouraged inattention in the lecture-room by dexterous sidekicks. Even to his ex-roommate, Plain Smith, the grim and slovenly schoolteacher who had called him Bub, and discouraged his confidences, Carl presented the attractions of Professor Fraser's lectures when he met him on campus. Smith looked quizzical and guessed that plays and play-acting were useless, if not actually immoral. "'Yes, but this isn't just plays, my young friend,' said Carl, with a hauteur new, but not exceedingly impressive, to Plain Smith. 
he takes up all these new stunts all this new philosophy and stuff they have in london and paris there's something besides shakespeare and the bible he added intending to be spiteful it may be stated that he did not like plain smith what new philosophy the spirit of brotherhood i suppose you're too orthodox for that oh no sonny not for that not for that and it ain't so very new that's what christ taught no sonny i ain't so orthodox but what i'm willing to have em show me anything that tries to advance brotherhood not that i think it's very likely to be found in a lot of new york plays but i'll look at one lesson anyway and plain smith clumped away humming greenland's icy mountains professor fraser's modern drama course began with isbon the first five lectures were almost conventional they were an attempt to place contemporary dramatists with reflections on the box-office standpoint. But his sixth lecture began rather unusually. There was an audience of sixty-four in lecture-room A, earnest girls, students, bringing out notebooks and spectacle cases, frivolous girls feeling their black hair, and the men settling down with a come, let's get it over hair, or glowing up worshipfully like Eugene Field Linderbeck, or determined not to miss anything like Carl. The captious college audience credulous as to statements of fact and heavily unresponsive to the spirit professor fraser younger than half a dozen of the plough-trained undergraduates thin of hair and sensitive of face sitting before them with one hand in his pocket and the other nervously tapping the small reading-table spoke quietly i'm not going to be a lecturer to-day i'm not going to analyze the plays of shaw which i assigned you you're supposed to have read them yourselves I am going to imagine that I am at tea in New Haven, or down in New York, at dinner in the basement of the old River Route, talking with a bunch of men who are trying to find out where the world is going, and why and when and how, and asking who are the prophets who are going to show it the way. We'll be getting excited over Shaw and Wells. There's something really worth getting excited over. These men have perceived that this world is not a crazy quilt of unrelated races, but a collection of human beings completely related, with all our interests, food and ambitions, and a desire to play absolutely in common, so that if we should take thought all together and work together, as a football team does, we would start making a perfect world. That's what socialism, of which you're beginning to hear so much, and of which you're going to hear so much more, means. If you feel genuine impelled to vote the Republican ticket, it's not my affair, of course. Indeed, the Socialist Party of this country constitutes only one branch of international socialism. But I do demand of you that you try to think for yourselves, if you are going to have the nerve to vote at all. Think of it, to vote how this whole nation is to be conducted. Doesn't that tremendous responsibility demand that you do something more than inherit your way of voting? that you really think, think hard, why you vote as you do. Pardon me for getting away from the subject proper. Yet, am I actually? For just what I have been saying is one of the messages of Shaw and Wells. The great vision of the glory that shall be, not in one sudden millennium, but slowly advancing toward joys of life, which we can no more provision than the aboriginal medicine man could imagine an X-ray. I wish that this were the time and the place to rhapsodize about that vision, as William Morris has done, in News from Nowhere. You tell me 
that the various brands of socialists differ so much in their beliefs about their future that the bewildered layman can make nothing at all of their theories. Very well. They differ so much because there are so many different things we can do with this human race. The defeat of death, the life period advancing to ten-score years all crowded with happy activity. The solution of labor's problem, increasing safety and decreasing hours of toil, and a way out of the unhappy consumer who is ground between labor and capital. A real democracy, and the love of work that shall come when work is not relegated to wage-slaves, but joyously shared in a community inclusive of the living beings of all nations, France and Germany, uniting precisely as Saxony and Prussia and Bavaria have united, and most of all, a general realization on that the fact that we cannot accomplish all these things at once does not indicate that they are hopeless. An understanding that one of the wonders of the future is the fact that we shall always, in all ages, have improvements to look forward to. Fellow students, object as strongly as you wish to the petty narrowness and vituperation of certain street-corner ranters, but do not be petty and narrow and vituperative in doing it. Now, to relate all this to the plays of Bernard Shaw, when he says, Professor Fraser's utterances seem tamely conservative nowadays, but this was in 1905 in a small, intensely religious college among the furrows. Imagine a devout pastor when his son kicks the family Bible and you have the mental state of half the students of Plato upon hearing a defense of socialism. Carl catching echoes of his own talks with Bone Stillman in the lecture, exultantly glanced about and found the class staring at one another with frightened anxiety. He saw the grim, plain Smith, not so much angry as ill. He saw two class clowns, snickering at the ecstasy in the eyes of Jeanie Linderbeck. In the corner drugstore, popularly known as the club, where all the college bloods gathered to drink lemon phosphate, an excited old man, whose tireless collar was almost concealed by his tobacco-stained beard, pushed back his black slouch hat with the G.A.R. cord, and banged his fist on the prescription counter, shouting, half at the clerk and half at the students matching pennies on the soda counter. I've lived in Plato, man and boy, for forty-seven years. Ever since it warn't nothing but a frontier trading post. I packed logs on my back, and I tramped fifty-three miles to get me a yoke of oxen. I remember when the Indians went riding during the war, and the cavalry rode here from St. Paul, and this town has always stood for decency and law and order. But when things come to such a pass that this fellow Fraser or any of the rest of those infidels from one of those here eastern colleges is allowed to stand up on his hind legs in a college building and bray about anarchism and tell us to trample on the old flag that we fought for and none of these professors that call themselves reverends step in and stop them, then let me tell you, I'm about ready to pull up stakes and go out west, where there's patriotism and decency still, and where they'd hang one of those foreign anarchists to the nearest lamp-post. Yes, sir, and this fellow Fraser too, if he encouraged them in their crank notions. Got no right in this country, anyway. Better deport them if they ain't satisfied with the way we run things. I won't stand for preaching anarchism, and never knew any decent place that would. 
Never since I was a baby in Canada. Yes, sir, I mean it. I'm an old man, but I'll pull up stakes and go pluggin' down the Santa Fe Trail first, and I mean it. Here's your bog bitters, Mr. Goff, said the clerk, hastily, as a passerby was drawn into the store by the old man's tirade. Mr. Goff stalked out muttering, and the college sports at the soda counter grinned at one another. But Gus Osberg of the junior class remarked to Carl Erickson, At that, though there's a good deal of what to old Goff says, bet a hat proxy won't stand for Prof. Fraser's talking anarchy. Fellow in the class told me it was fierce stuff he was talking. Regular anarchy. Rats. It wasn't anything of the kind, protested Carl. I was there, and I heard the whole thing. He just explained what this Bernard Shaw that writes plays meant by socialism. Well, even so, don't you think it's kind of unnecessary to talk publicly, right out in the college lecture room, about socialism? inquired a senior who was high up in the debating society. Well, thunder! was all Carl said, as the whole group stared at him. He felt ridiculous. He was afraid of seeming to be a crank. He escaped from the drug store. When he arrived at Mrs. Henkel's boarding-house for supper the next evening, he found the students passing from hand to hand a copy of the town newspaper, the Plato Weekly Times, which bore on the front page what the town regarded as a red-hot news story. Plato Professor Talks Sedaciously as we go to press, we learn that rumors are flying about the campus that the powers that be are highly incensed by the remarks of a well-known member of the local faculty praising socialism and other form of anarchy. It is said that one of the older members of the faculty will demand from the erring teacher an explanation of his remarks, which are alleged to have taken the form of a defense of the English anarchist Bernard Shaw. Those on the QV are expecting sensational developments, and campus talk is so extensively occupied with the discussions of the affair that the important coming game with St. John's College is almost forgotten. While the Times has always supported Plato College as one of the chief glories in the proud crown of Minnesota learning, we can but illy stomach such news. It goes without saying that we cannot too strongly disapprove, express our disapproval of such incendiary utterances and we shall fearlessly report the whole of this fair. Let the chips fall where they may. There, Mr. Erickson, said Mrs. Henkel, a plump, decent, disapproving person, who had known too many generations of late Platonians, to be impressed by anything. You see what the public thinks of your Professor Fraser? I told you people wouldn't stomach such news, and I wouldn't wonder if they strongly disapproved. This ain't anything but gossip, said Carl feebly, but as he read the account in the Weekly Times, he was sick and frightened. Such was his youthful awe of print. He wanted to beat the mossy-whiskered editor of the Times, who always had white food stains on his lapels. When he raised his eyes, the coquette made Torthson tried to cheer him. It'll all come out in the wash, Eric. Don't worry. Those editors have to have something to write about, or they couldn't fill up the paper. He pressed her foot on the table. He was chatty and helped to keep the general conversation away from the Fraser affair. But he was growing more and more angry, with a desire for effective action which expressed itself within him only by, I'll show him, makes me so sore. Everywhere they discussed and rediscussed Professor Fraser. 
in the dressing-room of the gymnasium where the football squad dressed in the sweat-reeking air and shouted at one another balancing each on one leg before small lockers and rubbing themselves with brown unclean turkish towels in the neat rooms of girl co-eds with their banners and cushions and pink comforters and chafing dishes of nut fudge and photographic postal cards showing the folks at home in the close horse-smelling lamp robe and whip-scattered office of the town livery stable where mr goff droned with the editor of the times everywhere carl heard the echoes and resolved i've got to do something end of chapter eight